Hi there, everyone. Um, Andy Zeppa, senior consultant at Gallup. Um, I'm responsible for Gallup's government division across Europe, so I work with a variety of governments, NGOs, charities, and foundations, all around this basic premise of ensuring that data, that organisations are using the right data to design their policies and their interventions. Um, one of the main mechanisms we use for that is the Gallup World Poll. It's nationally representative surveys in 140 countries. And so that's going to be the main kind of basis and the main core of this presentation. So without further ado, Gallup. So a number of you may be familiar with the Gallup name for our political polling, uh, probably in the US. Um, this stems from an individual named George Gallup, who's basically one of the pioneers of robust survey design. He once stated that, if democracy is supposed to be based on the will of the people, then shouldn't somebody go out and find out what that will is? And so with that as the general tenet and general um, framing of the Gallup organisation, in 2005, our CEO had the big, bold idea of measuring the hopes, dreams and fears of the entire world's population, which led to the creation of the Gallup World Poll. So this is nationally representative surveys in over 150 countries on an annual basis, which is representative of 98% of the world's population. We use both urban and rural sampling in order to, to get there. Um, and so once again, it's, it's based upon this principle um, as stated by far more articulately than I could by Lord Kelvin, which is to measure is to know. If you cannot measure it, you cannot improve it. And so we recognize that this is one of the big central challenges that many of you in the room will face today. Um, we have our own challenges in getting that complete 100% uh, global spread. North Korea aren't too inviting of a uh, US-based organization doing surveys there. Papua New Guinea is also very, very difficult, given the 200-plus languages, low population density uh, spread over a large number of islands. But we've got every intention to get there in the end. So it's an annual instrument on this global, on a global spread. You're probably interested to know what methodology we use. Um, so it's predominantly face-to-face -face surveys. So it's face-to-face -face surveys cross back 70 to 80 of those 140 to 150 countries that we survey every single year. And so it's very easy to say that we cover that number of countries. But when you actually think about the logistics of conducting a true nationally representative, randomly collected, individuals within each one of those 150 countries, it starts to get very, very hairy very, very quickly. Um, the surveys are of the adult population, we use the frame of 15 plus for that. Those individuals who are non-institutionalized, so we can't get into prisons, we can't get into uh, places like the brick kilns in India, etc. But our coverage is, is pretty robust. Um, in terms of our um, our methodology, we're very, very transparent about those areas that we can't actually access as well. So, for example, in areas in, in Georgia, such as the occupied ter uh, territories, um, we're very transparent with the fact that we can't get there due to safety reasons. Generally, our coverage is very good there. Um, and so, trying to reframe things back into the context of actually being in 150 countries, I've actually shown a few photos of um, some of my colleagues on the ground. This is Kyrgyzstan. This is Argentina. This is India. 
One of the first questions that um, individuals often ask when we say we do a world poll is, what questions do you ask? And so when we decided, decided to go onto this huge global enterprise, um, we started off by looking at the best questions we've been asking over the past 80 years. So we took those to the side. Um, then we went out and we recruited a number of senior scientists. So these were leading academics such as Angus Deaton from the University of Princeton, um, Danny Kahneman from, also from the University of Princeton, Nobel Prize winner, uh, Ed Diener, John Halliwell, some of the leading for foremost experts in the topic of well-being. And also some people that you probably wouldn't necessarily expect, individuals such as Vince Cerf, one of the forefathers of the internet, Deepak Chopra, just trying to get multiple different angles to try and understand what are the key drivers and what are the key variables that we need to be measuring in order to understand what leads to a good life. So then, like any good consulting organisation, we took all of these items and we built a model. And this is the model here on the, on the screen. Um, it covers a, a range of different elements from law and order. So questions such as, do you feel safe walking alone at night in the area or community you live? Food and shelter. Infrastructure institutions. And so this is a fairly broad church, including education, electoral systems, um, uh, roads. And then we recognise that once you've got all three of those elements doing well within a society, you almost start to create a perfect storm for the creation of good jobs in that society. And so in conjunction with the ILO and Sarah Elder there, we developed a module of questions to accurately measure unemployment, unemployment, and underemployment. Um, from all of our research and our collaboration with the likes of the OECD, access to a good job is one of the biggest key drivers for, for well-being. Um, there's other dimensions as well, um, but we can discuss that later. And so that's the kind of the general overall framework of, of where these questions and how the questions that we ask in our core of the, the instrument are actually designed and put into place. Um, the data that's generated by the World Poll on an annual basis is used by a fairly broad church of organisations. Um, includes uh, UNSDSN um, with the World Happiness Report, OECD's Better Life Index, ILO's World of Work, um, plus a number of NGOs. So you can see Global Age Watches, uh, Charity Aid Foundation, Legatum Institute, the Think Tank, um, plus many, many others. So one of the key issues um, with the original MDGs was the fact that a number of the UN organisations had a global mandate in order to actually provide data, but not necessarily the measurement mechanism with which to do that. And so they created mechanisms and systems with which to try and provide the best possible data they could. But unfortunately, that, those models and the mechanisms they were doing for that were not always fit for purpose. So back in 2000, during the food price crisis of 2008 and 2009, FAO were asked to try and determine how many people across the world were going hungry. They came up with, they used their standard model using the prevalence of undernourishment model. Um, but because of the time lag associated, associated with some of the data, um, they asked for a number of assumptions from the World Bank. The World Bank gave those assumptions, they ran the numbers, and they came to the figure of one billion. And so many of you will be familiar with the one billion people around the world being hungry. So a couple of years later, once they actually had the data in, they were asked to reevaluate and reassess whether that one billion figure was correct. So 
the way the previous model worked was looking at net imports and net exports um, of total food produced in the country. Um, and basically netting that out, netting out the exports, netting in the imports, and then working out a calorific value for that, putting that through a standard distribution model, which then allows you to tell how many people across the world are getting hungry. Um, the problem with that was India and China actually imposed food tariff, uh, tariffs against the export of foods during that period, which basically threw all the numbers into massive contention. So overnight, it wasn't a billion, it was 868 million. And so overnight, million over 100 million people were no longer food insecure during the food price crisis. This obviously isn't great for those organisations producing those numbers. It creates crises in confidence and, and real difficulties. But ultimately, FAO were doing the best they could with the numbers and data that were available. Um, and so I was giving a few presentations around time around some of the World Poll data, um, which was picked up by IFPRI, who was saying, OK, in fact, Gallup's numbers actually picked up the, the measurement of food insecurity more accurately than the numbers that were being put forward by the FAO. This led to a number of conversations with FAO, who said, OK, is there a better way of measuring, which is more timely, which can potentially be more reliable, and which can more effectively uh, reflect the situation on the ground. And so, so basically, we created a technical advisory group, uh, bringing in some of the world's leading authorities, such as Mark Nord from the US Department of Agriculture, um, Romulo Pace de Sousa, uh, one of the key uh, advocates and um, uh, ministry members within the Brazilian government in, uh, in terms of their huge tackling of, of food insecurity in the country. Lawrence Haddad, from the, uh, who was at IDS at the time, um, plus, plus a number of others, to say, OK, does a pre-existing module of questions, does a pre-existing instrument accurately measure food insecurity across the world? Um, is there a, a, an instrument that could be used and scaled using the global instrument that Gallup's developed um, and put onto, onto that? And we identified a module called um, the FI scale, the Food Insecurity Experiential Scale, which was originally developed by the US Department of Agriculture and then later adopted by the Brazilian, Guatemalan and Mexican governments in order to determine either their bolsa payments or their social security payments for addressing um, uh, poverty within those countries. And this is the latest iteration of the, the set of questions which are being asked globally. It uses a latent trait model of food insecurity. And so each one of these questions is looking at an increasingly severe measure of food insecurity with, for that individual. And basically, because of the, this underlying framework and the underlying model that's used, we can actually, using um, rash modeling, actually attribute these numbers within country and normalize them so that you can look at country X versus country Y using the same scale. So this actually represents a huge paradigm shift in the way that we can actually measure food insecurity. Because rather than waiting three years for the gross agricultural um, statistics to be um, sent from the National, Agri uh, National Statistics Departments, sent to FAO, cleaned, weighted, put through their, their model. This is data from the ground, which FAO has within three months of us coming out of the field. So um, in this terms of... This paper based, right? Um, so this is, yeah, uh, so it depends. We, we rather use PAPI, so paper and pen surveys. Uh, uh, CAPI, which is computer-assisted personal interviewing, which is a kind of a miniature computer, or within developed countries, so 
um, within, say, the UK or US, we use outbound telephone. That's a mixed modality. And so because of the high prevalence of mobile-only households within the West, um, we have to use that dual frame. And so um, that allows us to, to, to address that. Um, so one of the often questions around surveys is, oh, it's just perceptions. But when I ask you, have you gone without food for an entire day due to lack of money or other resources? Is that a perception or is that an experience? And so this is one of the things that we're trying to address is the fact that we're not just gathering opinions, we're actually gathering people's experiences on the ground. And so that's why the, the name of the project is called The Voices of the Hungry. Because ultimately we're trying to pr provide some kind of a mechanism to actually get the status of people from the ground and actually give them a voice on the global stage. Um, we also do a similar project which has been funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for the World Bank looking at financial inclusion. It was quite interesting sitting in the plenary session at, um, at, at the beginning because there was all this talk about innovation, new innovative mechanisms with which to actually provide funds for individuals to, to ensure that they're getting direct money in their pocket which they can use. But the question is, how can you do that if they don't have access to a bank account? The step before that is, how can you, do, how can you actually create mechanisms to create those bank accounts if you don't know who the world's unbanked are. And so ultimately, this project has been really trying to get to the heart of that and addressing who are the world's unbanked. If they are unbanked, why are they unbanked? If they're not formally using formal financial institutions, what type of financial uh, institutions and, and infrastructure are they using? Is it local support-based savings schemes, which we see are fairly prevalent in, in sub-Saharan Africa? Is it these quasi-M-banking schemes which have, uh, have been developed? So you've got the huge prevalence of, of M-PESA um, within uh, certain areas of sub-Saharan Africa. But then you've also got almost a black market trade in a mobile currency occurring as well. By actually measuring these type of elements, you start to get a better understanding of where the business opportunities exist as well. And so if you want to facilitate private sectors to actually step into this place, and to start to provide those services. If you provide the data for those organisations to better understand the nature of the problem, then you actually start to facilitate those type of conversations from a, more, a far more logical position. Um, another project that we're also in discussions with, in fact, with um, GIZ, is around building this out to, to micro-insurance. And so, so we recognise that an individual's abilities to almost cash in their chips is incredibly important and insurance provides that ability. So trying to understand who actually has insurance, looking at what potential routes to market there are for insurance and micro-insurance. And um, that's something which hopefully we should get in the field before 2017, 2018. So looking more at kind of a humanitarian basis, um, Gallup's work in Haiti. So basically helping Haitians uh, be heard. So as I mentioned, as part of the World Poll, we do these nationally representative surveys. Many of you will be familiar with the earthquake that occurred in, uh, in Haiti in 2010. Um, as a consequence of that, there was a huge displacement of people into refugee camps. And so for our survey work to actually be representative, we needed to survey the refugee camps. So that's what we did. We conducted, so on an annual basis in Haiti, we conduct 700 surveys across a randomly drawn sample 
of Haitians. Um, so in 2010, we did 500 within our standard households and 200 selected from refugee camps. So the refugee camps come in a whole variety of different shapes and sizes. Um, some as small as kind of 80 people, um, and some as large as over 30,000 people. And so we need to ensure that the analysis and the framing that we use for the, uh, I suppose, using a scientific basis for this work was really there. Um, so in order to do this, we first of all, um, working in conjunction with our local partners, CID Gallup, um, we obtained a list of all 894 refugee camps that, that were there in Haiti. Um, these range from camps of under 80, uh, under 80 tents all the way through to those with um, an excess of uh, 34,000 people. Um, so taking account of the population size, a random sample of 24 camps were drawn as primary sampling units. And e within each one of those PSUs, we conducted eight interviews. Um, so in order to actually guarantee the consistency of the work that we were doing, we used our local partner, uh, we used our Latin Caribbean team. Um, so uh, a lady called um, Joanna Godoy is our regional research director for, for the whole of the Latin America region. She's got a number of teams in country that she works with. And so we took one of those specific teams out to Haiti and, all, and trained our local partners in ha uh, Haiti, um, essentially best uh, best practices of survey research. You see across the whole of the development community tens of millions of dollars being spent on statistical capacity development. And so it's quite interesting that as a commercial private organisation, which is often regarded with a certain amount of scepticism by the developed community, we're actually doing that off our own dollar because we recognise that ultimately that needs to be done to provide good survey work. Um, so in terms of the methodology we used, um, our, so just quickly before I, I go further, is this too much detail or is this useful for, for everyone in the room in terms of using random root procedures within refugee camps, etc.? Okay, so um, <coughs> our supervisors basically went in um, before the actual survey teams in order to actually draw a map of the, the refugee camp, looking at kind of the main distribution of where the, the settlements were, and created quadrants, which were then allocated to the actual survey teams. So within each survey team, of about between eight to 10 people, you've got a supervisor and uh, interviewers as well. And so from there, the supervisor selects a, a starting point, which is, normally, which is normally an object of note, just in order to actually ensure that if there are any quality issues, that we can actually re-identify that first starting point in order to go back in and check for, as a quality assurance and quality control measure. Um, and then on a regular interval, we go and interview tents. Um, ideally, within best quality research, we'd be randomly selecting the individual within the household. Because of the short time frame that we had to actually operate within the camps, so because of security concerns, because of, um, yeah, predominantly because of security concerns and because of the actual window of opportunity that we're allowed to be there, we had a two-hour period with which to actually conduct the surveys. And so we pre-drew quotas, which we then completed when we were doing the 10 to 10 surveys. Um, we used a, uh, an array of vehicles to, to get around between the different camps. And um, all of the, the work that we did was um, had the sign-off of 
the, the local security and the UN uh, protection. Um, Sorry, did, did everyone in the tent agree to being interviewed? So it's not it's not everybody in the tent. Um, so it's. But you would find a representative from each tent that would agree. So we we'd look to to find the individual that fit fit the quota within the tent. Um, obviously, they need to consent, but it's quite interesting with this type of work within the the um, within the UK, for example. Response rates are really quite difficult. Yeah. We're getting increasingly low levels of, uh, of of response rates. It's it's more of a, an uphill struggle. We actually find that in this type of context, people want their voice to be heard. So we're going there, asking them questions um, about their life, about their their perceptions of, of corruption, about their um, access to, to uh, drinking water. Um, and so it's types of questions that people actually like to be asked. They like to be asked, um, so I mentioned the well-being uh, question. So um, I personally sit on the technical advisory group for the UK Office for National Statistics Measuring Wellbeing Team um, and work with the OECD in terms of their Better Life Index. And it's interesting to actually look at how some of these well-being metrics could actually be used in this humanitarian sector. Because ultimately, what we're trying to do with that is measuring are people living a good life through life evaluation and these affect questions? Are people essentially getting to measure the, the types of lives that, that they want? And so because we've got this global baseline through the world poll, when crises do strike, we can actually see, okay, what was an individual's life before the crisis? And then when it hits, what's it like afterwards? And then when the billions of dollars are actually spent trying to, to repair that situation, how effective is it in the end? And so um, that's some of the work that Gallup's been doing in this space. Please.